Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to The Tonight Show. Junior Minister Niall Collins is expected to make a statement to the Dáil over a land purchase controversy. But the Taoiseach says we shouldn't face questions. I do not believe that the questions and answer sessions that happen in this chamber, quite frankly, are fair. Uh, and I have somebody who, I have somebody who has uh, been subjected to it. Um, this place is a parliament, it's not a kangaroo court. More schemes are added to the government's housing for all plan. Is it an admission that something is not right? What we need to ensure is that we get more commencement started this year to make sure that we can hit and exceed the target for 2024. Later, potential new speed cameras that can tell a lot more than how fast you're going. There's no show like a Joe show. President Biden says he will run again. If he wins, he will be 82. And just how much more money do we spend on electricity compared to our European neighbours? Spoiler alert, you will not like the answer. You can join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. saga surrounding planning applications and land deals in County Limerick has dogged Junior Minister Niall Collins for a matter of months. Today, they were front and centre in the Dáil. They concern allegations stemming from an article in the Ditch website about a decision by Limerick Council to place a property for sale on the open market in 2007. Well, earlier, opposition parties brought the issue up in the Dáil. The timeline is really important in relation to this, and that's the kind of granular information that we need to tease out. Has the Minister given you assurances that he is not in breach of the Local Government Act by not declaring an interest or recusing himself in that vote? And can you confirm to this House that you are satisfied that he is not in breach of Section 177 of the Local Government Act? Surely the Local Government Act applies to him, and therefore his failure to recuse himself, his failure to declare a conflict of interest is not only a breach of the Code of Ethics, but is a breach of that legislation and an indictable offence. Well, the Taoiseach defended the decision not to have questions after any statement by Niall Collins saying that all is not a, quote, kangaroo court. I do not believe that the questions and answer sessions that happen in this chamber, quite frankly, are fair. Uh, and I have somebody who, I have somebody who has uh, been subjected to it. Um, this place is a parliament. It's not a kangaroo court. Well, let's bring in our panel. I'm joined by Fianna Fáil TD, Christopher O'Sullivan. Sinn Féin TD, Louise O'Reilly, and Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, Gavin, to you first, uh, to bring us up to date on this story involving Niall Collins, we want to take a step back and, and, and tell us around the background 
to this controversy that got us to where we are today? Sure. This article was first reported by The Ditch last Wednesday, but there was a sort of a, a little bit of a legal impasse where, because of the sensitive nature of the, the allegations that were at the centre of it, until somebody was prepared to almost give them voice in the Dáil Chamber or until Niall Collins was prepared to respond to them, which he didn't do until last night, it was very difficult for other outlets to feel comfortable reporting on them. But the substance of the story is that in December 2006, while Niall Collins was still a member of the then Limerick County Council, a solicitor for his wife, who was a local GP, wrote to the County Council inquiring about whether it might sell her some undeveloped grassland on the main street in Patrick's Well. She said, she's a GP, the town could potentially use a GP service, there isn't one there, she would like to build a GP surgery on that site. Um, that proposal indirectly was brought to a meeting of councillors, uh, the Brough local electoral area, the following month. Niall Collins, Emer, Emer's, uh, the, the husband of the GP, uh, was present. Um, Niall Collins did not recuse himself at that meeting. It was mentioned by the council management that there had been multiple expressions of interest to purchase this land and the blessing of councillors was sought to proceed with the prospect of putting it on the market. Uh, Niall Collins is not recorded as having done anything on the minutes, but nonetheless he's not recorded as having you know, mentioned any prospective conflict of interest or recusing himself in any way. Um, four months later, Niall Collins is elected to the Doyle in the general election of May 2007. So at that point, he's no longer a member of Limerick County Council. In the meantime, the council has put the land on the market. It's been advertised a couple of times in local papers. And eventually, councillors are asked in August 2008, are they prepared to sanction the sale for set terms at a set amount to uh, Emer O'Connor, I think it's Emer O'Connor, pardon me, Emer O'Connor, who is the GP, the wife of um, Niall Collins. Um, Niall Collins put out a statement last night and said, well, I wasn't a member of the council at the time in 2008, so I had no role in sanctioning the transfer of the land to, to my wife. What he says is that the vote in 2007 in which he was a participant in that discussion, he says that that can't amount to him granting what's called in law a pecuniary interest uh, to his wife or to anyone else connected to him. Because as, as far as he's presenting it, all they did was sanction the idea of putting the land on the market. They didn't commit to selling it to anybody. Mm -hmm. They weren't you know, agreeing to, to, to approach it to any particular party. So he says, well, that's not me granting favourable interest to anyone connected to me or to anyone at all, because when you put it on the market, simply anyone could prospectively put in a bid and buy it. But nonetheless, the question still arises as to whether it was appropriate for Niall Collins to remain in the room and be a participant in the meeting at a time that they were discussing the prospect of sale of land that his wife expressed an interest in buying a month earlier. Yeah, and all the rest of it, like you're saying around the timeline, and we know at certain points when the sale was completed and all of that, at that point, Niall Collins was not a councillor. So at the nub of this is that local area meeting and that statement in which he said uh, he nor his wife had any pecuniary or beneficial interest in the property that was put up for sale. But that's uh, something that's certainly being disputed um, by those in the opposition. Yeah, and I don't want to, to put it down to be something as, as, as facile as a semantic argument, but th there is a certain level of semantics to this as to whether a pecuniary interest, which is basically a monetary, something that relates to money, do you have an interest in land that you don't own? Do you materially benefit from land that you don't own being put on the market? There's an argument that, no, you, you can't possibly benefit because if you don't own the land mm -hmm. and there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to own the land, then you don't have one. But equally, there might be argument that there is a material interest if Niall Collins' wife had approached the council seeking to buy the land and Niall Collins was a participant in that process getting going only a few weeks later. OK, all right. Um, to bring you in on this, Christopher O'Sullivan, is it now the consensus line in government 
that Niall Collins should have recused himself. The Taoiseach said he should have absented himself from the meeting over the land sale. So does the Thornishtha and Micheál Martin. So does Eamon Ryan. Is that the official government response? Is that, and is that where it ends? Look, first of all, I think the most important development today is that Niall Collins has agreed, Mr Collins has agreed to uh, come into the Doyle, uh, give a statement. He's well aware of the issues. He's well aware of the que questions being raised. Uh, and I have confidence that he will be able to clarify and answer uh, those those questions uh, when he does but have not the opportunity actually, to do but, so. but not taking questions? From my understanding, the agreement is that he, he won't be taking questions in, in this session, but he's very he's well aware um, of the accusations. He's so what's well aware he going the, to answer that's not already in his statement? Many of the allegations that have been made um, by the Ditch publication um, and... You know, they, they will be the, the questions that have been raised over the period of this time. So you asked me what what the uh, party position is. Look, the Tanishay is an incredibly experienced politician. Uh, he's been around a while. Um, I'd agree with his assessment that um, at that local area meeting, it would have been, um, I suppose, better practice for Minister Collins to recuse himself. But has he broken the Local Government Act? From my interpretation and from what we've learned so far, he hasn't. Um, is this a sackable offence or is it a situation that he should um, step down? I don't believe it I isn't. Know, you, but like we'll see were, what develops yeah. over the next... Um, Christopher, uh, I suppose I'm thinking, um, like, like many TDs, you're a councillor. Yeah. Um, were the rules very clear on this? That, you know, should you have a relative or should you know of, of somebody making an inquiry about a piece of public land for sale um, and then a decision later being made to vote on whether that land is put up for sale... Are, are, are the rules clear enough, do you think? And is it something that you're very aware of yeah, uh, when you take a council seat on how you should vote or should not vote in these instances? And that's where I think it's important to explain the difference between this uh, local area meeting, which is an advisory committee. It has no statutory power and a full council meeting. So the decision to um, sell the land to Minister Collins's wife was taken at a full council meeting when Minister Collins was no longer a minister. Uh, the decision to dispose of the land, not to any individual person, not to a particular person, but just to sell uh, the land that it would be put up for sale, was done at a local area meeting, which is very much advisory. And from my knowledge, I doubt very much whether there was a vote. I imagine this would have been a case of a proposal and a seconder, uh, and there, there may not have been a vote, okay. it would just have but been passed. No, but it's interesting, though, having you having said all that, that both Taoiseach Thornish there, all three actually, and Eamon Ryan have said, <coughs> well, he should have... He should, he should have recused himself from that. He should have absented. He should have walked away and withdrawn, expressed... And as I said, I, I would agree with the, the Tarnish's assessment there um, about recusing himself. But it, the, the, the further question then is, is, does that lead to a situation where a really hardworking minister who's focusing on things like student accommodation mm -hmm. and apprentices should have to... You know, is his uh, position in question? I don't think it is. Mm -hmm. But the statement will, will come either tomorrow or Thursday... Um, should clarify and answer all of those those right. questions. Um, Louise, does this matter to Sinn Féin? Is it something that you believe is important to get more clarity on? Well, I think accountability uh, is important. And I mean, Section 177 of the Local Government Act says we're at a meeting of the local authority or of any committee, joint committee or joint body of a local authority. So that to me would suggest that the meeting in fact was covered. But again, you know, the minister is going to have a chance to, uh, to clarify his own uh, position. I mean, you quite rightly, uh, Claire, have described this at the, uh, the intro as a, a saga, and it is. And it's not the first time, in fact, only a couple of weeks since the last time uh, the same uh, minister was in to, uh, to make yet another statement in, in relation to another matter. So I think accountability is important and I think it is important that we hear from the... So on the one hand, you have the, the Taoiseach and the, the leader of the Green Party saying that they're 
the Minister Collins, Junior Minister Collins, should have recused himself, that he should have recused himself. But for what reason, except those that are laid down in the, the Local Government Act, he should have recused himself. Of course he should. He should have been up front so and So that honest. should form the basis of his statement. That's the clarity you're looking for. Why but I, didn't And he? I think, and yeah, and you know, it is from the opposition side, I think it's a worry that maybe clarity won't be given. So this is a, a bank holiday weekend. I'm going to make a prediction that uh, Junior Minister Collins will do what he did the last time, only a couple of weeks ago actually, and it'll be late on on a Thursday when the place is very quiet and there's very little business being done. And again, we're going into uh, a long weekend, which um, I think yeah, he, I, he, he may possibly And I am wondering about all suit. of this, because obviously, you know, Sinn Féin usually like to pile pressure on government over matters such as this. And yet it was the pe people before profit, it was Paul Murphy who was brought pressure to bear on Niall Collins. This is where this is all really stemming from, from a political point of view. It's not something Sinn Féin raised at all over the weekend. It's not something we heard um, from you about late last week when this story broke on the Ditch website. Was that a conscious decision made at party level? Uh, and why? My colleague, um, Deputy Podrick McLaughlin raised it this morning at the Business Committee mm. to, to, schedule, to, to schedule some time for it. My colleague, Mairead Farrell, ha had also raised it, you know. But, but is there we a gave, reason why? We gave, him a no, we gave him a chance to come out and clarify matters, and he didn't. And the statement that he issued actually uh, asks more questions than, uh, than it answers. And I want to tell you something. If I was a backbencher in Fine Gael now watching this and I see the big guns coming out and the wagons being circled to protect uh, Junior Minister Niall Collins when none of that was apparently done uh, for former Junior Minister Damien English, I would probably be very annoyed to see this happening actually at the moment. But I think accountability is important. The okay. reason that we're looking for questions and answers is because given the statement that he's given pressure, already... There was a lot of pressure put on, on Robert Troy. I'm just referring to the other stories that were on, on the Ditch website. And again, um, in, in relation to Damien English as well. I'm just wondering in relation to this particular story, why Sinn Féin, I suppose, have let people for profit put the political pressure on initially. But there was no... There was unanimity among the opposition um, today and every single one of us had looked for questions and answers and for a statement right. to be made. So okay. he's going to make the statement. As I say, I make a prediction that it's going to be done at a time that's very convenient, uh, perhaps for him and not for other people. It's fair enough, he's entitled to do that. But if there are questions that remain, he should come into the doll and answer those questions. OK, uh, remaining questions and what form, I suppose, we, we, we clarity is given on those questions is... is well, it actually remains to be seen, doesn't it, uh, Gavin? Yeah, well, I suppose it's a bit it, of a cliche. But, there's a question um, as to you know, whether his statement will answer the or address the remaining questions, which of course we don't know, and there won't be a format to do any follow-up questions to that. Um, if people are wondering when this statement from Niall Collins might be, um, there hasn't been any arrangement made yet, as I understand it, this evening for for timing around that. The Count Court has been out of the country and when you're making a personal statement, you need to do it with the Count Court's discretion and blessing. So he has a certain role in scheduling all of that. Would he, he be just... better off answering, arguably politically answering questions on this? We saw the same with Pascal Donoghue and he was back then before the doll again where he did take questions. Mm. It was on, look, different matters. But again, it was on the foot of opposition pressure to give more clarity around... Mm. around uh, another matter um, regarding election uh, election spending, but you know, would it be a, would it be a safer bet to, to take to take the questions yeah. and answer them? There are times as when as he can in the thaw. There are times when those Q and A sessions can, can really see the story get away from somebody and they end up in more hot water at the end than at the start. But there are other uh, junctures at which they do manage to put a story to bed. Almost sometimes, I think usually the trick or the common trait when somebody is able to put a story to bed is that no matter how implausible their explanation or how contentious it might be, if they lay out a story and they stick to it, then it sort of means that the story ends up 
at a bit of a stalemate and doesn't go any further. OK, all right. I want to move on to the announcement that was made um, today around initiatives packaged into one big announcement, Christopher Sullivan, <coughs> on the issue of housing. Um, is it a sign um, that the government is under pressure to deliver houses and meet key targets um, that they're, they're failing on? So in the area of social and affordable housing, they're failing on those targets right now. Um, is this an admission of that when you start adding to the big plan? It's certainly a sign that the government is under pressure to deliver houses. It's under pressure to deliver public housing and it's under pressure to deliver um, or to deliver on home ownership. Um, I don't think it's a sign at all that it's failing. I mean, a lot of the measures that are announced today in, in terms of the expansion of pre-Cunaha, pre-Cunaha is a measure in mm. housing for all, um, the expansion of cost rental, again, another measure in housing for all. So these are expansions and adaptations, I think, when you, as as um, does it situations... sit comfortably now for Fianna Fáil? So on the issue of easing, um, easing development levies, how does that sit with you now as a Fianna Fáil TD? Given, as, a, as a Fianna Fáil TD who believes given a in... lot of criticism that has been levelled um, at your party over decisions made um, during the Celtic. Yeah, so in in, in it, like as I said at the start, Fianna Fáil are a party who believe in uh, public housing, that is social housing, mm. um, which we delivered ten thousand social homes last year, and we believe in home ownership. Um, there's an issue at the moment in terms of the fact that the cost of building has uh, increased significantly, especially over the last 12 months. But hasn't um, it we meant need to that people that. end up spending, um, spending more and, and house prices are higher as a result for new developments? No, not, is this going to ensure in, that I'll, I'll give you perfect, actually the saving is made for home buyers? I'll give you a perfect example, Claire. So the, this levy is aimed at housing schemes, yes, but it's also aimed at one-off houses. And in my constituency at the moment in West Cork, one-off housing is a very popular way um, uh, of uh, acquiring home ownership, uh, reducing a levy, which is an average of about 12,500 per unit, will be a huge benefit to a young couple, a young person, or anybody who's looking to build their first home uh, on perhaps their own when land. When you find a way, site. now most of them, I imagine, they will be going towards builders. Will they be will, getting, and, and that, builders and, will be getting them. So, the, can the, you guarantee the, the when you do this, if it, is, if it, if it meets you know, 12,500 euro on average per unit, per house, um, can you guarantee then that that saving? will be passed on to people who are looking to buy those houses. What this measure will do is it will unlock 60 to 70,000 homes that are currently caught up in the planning process um, and that will provide supply, which will increase the supply in the market, which you would hope would okay. uh, reduce the cost. But also it will reduce the cost because um, the, when you take 12,500 off a single unit, it's going to reduce costs. It's going to make houses more affordable. And that's what we're trying to do is give people access to um, home ownership. Louise, you're shaking your head. Of course um, I am, because there's no guarantee that it's going to be passed on at all. In fact, when the Minister was asked about this today, um, I mean, let's be clear about what this is. This is a billion euros that they're proposing to hand to developers. No targets, uh, no very, very little detail. I think it was 12 lines in a, in a press release. Um, and perhaps there will be more detail forthcoming. Uh, would be incredibly welcome, uh, although very rarely got uh, from the Minister for Housing. But if he had any detail, I think today would have been the day okay. to share it. But there is no guarantee that any savings that are made by big property developers, uh, builders or otherwise, will be passed on to people who are struggling to buy their own homes. Absolutely would, none. Would Sinn Féin concede that removing levies, if they do stand in the way of building in the time of a housing crisis, is a good thing? What we need to be doing is giving money to approved housing bodies to build affordable homes for working people to rent okay, and so buy. Let's talk about then this other initiative, the state financing of cost rental projects. Gavin, like, you know, take us through what, what that means, because people may think, well, are the state not already financing cost rental. This is aimed mm. at the state helping people um, to 
you yeah, know, live so somewhere the, affordably? Yeah, so this is a, a, a specifically targeted measure and it's not a permanent measure. It is sort of an interim time limited thing. But again, the, the former details, I think, have yet to be published or fully fleshed out. But I think the idea is that this will apply in instances where planning permission has been granted for an affordable housing development, but because of capital constraints or some other reasons, the, the project hasn't got off the ground. And the, the, the state's contention and the government's contention is that there are enough projects in the pipeline which are tied up due to a shortcoming of capital. So if the state steps in and then bankrolls their construction, that you will therefore have more housing available to people, which then can be offered at a cost rental basis. Quite exactly what's the, how that will work in terms of eventual ownership and whether the state putting up more money means that some other private uh, approved housing body or the state itself or some other private entity ends up housing, own, owning the accommodation, I think, is something which definitely needs to be sounded out. Just on, on the general point of what the government has done today, it's worth for people understanding where exactly this has been motivated by. The current housing targets uh, are likely to be insufficient because there's a housing commission right now which is trying to gauge exactly what, how much housing we need. The housing for all targets were pre-census and pre-Ukraine, so they're almost certainly not enough. And what the government is doing today is to try and help them meet the housing for all targets, which last year for construction weren't met. So it is an extra billion euro that's going into trying to meet targets which themselves may not be sufficient. And yes. when, when they're still waiting for the Housing Commission is, to guide on how much housing no, you need. There's no guarantee that they okay. will hit their targets because they haven't been hitting their targets. And I think, you know, so, we really need to look at the people who are at the business end of this. Young people who are waiting to start their lives. They're stuck in their mum's back bedroom. They cannot get out. They cannot buy their own home. They cannot begin their lives. Okay. That's an absolute disgrace. And there's no sign of a change in under this Christopher, this is, this is about, it seems, uh, the government also playing catch up on those targets that they're looking to meet when an awful lot more is required. And that has been said, that has been said by government, that has been said by, by the Taoiseach, he has said it. And, you know, any time we have anybody in here, they go, look, we know we're, we're just trying to keep pace with what's required. Um, is there a sense in government that whatever targets you're trying to reach, those targets are now grossly out of date anyway? I think catch-up is, is a good term. Uh, we are playing catch-up for decades of, of undersupply. Yeah, but catch-up um, on your own established targets. And, and it's an ever-changing situation. It's an ever-changing environment um, because, as as Gavin has just as Gavin has just outlined, you have situations where we have had to respond to a humanitarian crisis in terms of providing providing accommodation for uh, Ukrainians. That's In terms of housing delivery, in terms of we were very keen not in terms of housing delivery, it's not getting worse. We provided 10,000 social homes last year. That's the most since no, the 70s. I'm sorry we, now, but there there's 30,000 people built. who are so homeless. Just let Chris finish this point. It is getting worse. In terms of housing delivery and housing build, the Q1 of 2023, we had 27,000 commencements. It's the most commencements uh, since records uh, commenced. Since so records commenced. This is, this Honestly, is, do, you, do you believe the, that the stuff? Delivery is, is, delivery is happening. 10,000 social homes compared to you know, very few built in previous decades. Louise, this is, is there anything you'd welcome today? So we have the state financing of cost rental projects. Would would you, Claire, this by is not, this say, is not about, that's do you know what thing. I would welcome? Do you know what I would welcome? I would welcome the government recognising that the targets they have set and are missing are not high enough and that their plan has failed and that they need... But they're not going to say that, but, are they? But, I mean, would you would Sinn Féin say that if they were in government? All of the available evidence suggests that what I'm saying is correct. So if we they, have if never, rents have never saying... been higher. Homelessness has never been higher. So mm. if we just use that as a measurement, there are 12,000 people in emergency accommodation. That figure has risen every single time, every time. So your, this your point is saying, say those for the government to state, our figures are way off, our targets are way off. 
um, uh, but we will try the, the, and get the, the, there. Is that, is that what you're saying? Like, we'll try and get there. So, so what they've announced today about state financing of cost rental projects, obviously trying to get more projects off the ground. Uh, the removal of development levies for, for, for whatever reason it was a, there it's a billion euro to try and to get builders more involved. It would be better and to also give the grants for vacant no, properties. Sorry, are any, it's, it's, it's not a billion euro vacant to properties. Are they something that are refurbishing Again, derelict and vacant properties? And, and where, where the government have made suggestions that we think make sense, we always do welcome it. But the facts speak for themselves. Okay, the rate of home ownership is dropping. The fact is that people, there is 12,000 people who are homeless at the moment. They live in an emergency accommodation. People are waiting to start their lives. They're stuck. They cannot buy. They cannot afford to move out. Rents are absolutely huge. Right. I'm just back from, I was in America yeah. there recently. I met young people who are telling me the reason they have left is because they cannot afford somewhere to live in Ireland. They have had to leave. They've been forced out by this government. Brief, we want them to come home. Just one very brief note is that those development levies are ordinarily paid directly to local authorities so that they can then help with the provision of utilities, water, be wastewater. That, that well, be this is a question, though. Yeah. The, the compensation of local authorities is a very important question because if it is the case okay. that developers aren't paying the levies and the councils don't get substitute revenue, then they have... Those, those levies will be compensated. And I want to say, in my own constituency, I am seeing the difference that Housing for All is making. We've delivered 300 social homes uh, since okay. this government began. All right. We have 180 social homes on street. We'll have... Um, you know, Fianna Fáil is for public housing and home ownership. Okay. Sinn Féin are clearly against We'll have to leave it there because the devil is in some of the detail, I think, around it this uh, latest um, initiative announced. There, we'll leave it. My thanks to Gavin Riley. Uh, Christopher and Louise will be staying on with me as we discuss potential new speed cameras that can tell whether or not you're on your phone or wearing a seatbelt. Do stay with us. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back. The Guardian are reportedly examining new speed camera technology that does a whole lot more than check your speed. They would be capable of potentially detecting drivers who are not wearing seatbelts or using their mobile phones. So is this a necessary tool or a step too far? Christopher O'Sullivan and Louise O'Reilly are still here with me. I'm also joined by Adrian Weckler, tech editor at independent.ie. Adrian, you're welcome along to the programme. So explain uh, this technology. Is it more than fancy cameras, uh, fancier than we already have, or is it a real 
step up in terms of technology because they're describing it as AI. So the AI comes in once the photographs are actually taken of the license plate and the person in the car. And the AI can then detect whether or not the person is wearing a seatbelt or whether they've been holding a mobile phone. After that, it goes to a human being to review and then the person matched up with the license plate gets a warning and potentially a fine. So they're trialing this at the moment in the UK, in Australia. Uh, it has been welcomed by some groups and has been criticised quite heavily by other groups. There, there are some significant downsides to it, um, but there, there is also improved compliance uh, in some of the areas where... OK, it's well, take us through the downsides, yep. I suppose, because <coughs> just to many people watching, they'd say, well, it sounds like if you have technology there to say, you know, AI is used, essentially you have the AI, but then it's cross-checked by a human being. So it's not all up to the robots to decide yeah. whether you're using your mobile phone or you're driving without a seatbelt. Yeah, well, I mean, the downsides, it's not just that you're going to need more cameras because don't forget, we're talking about bus lanes uh, as well, potentially, and, and traffic lights. By the way, this will probably take a modification of current legislation uh, to do this. But you're not just talking about more cameras and possibly become like London, which is the CCTV capital of Europe, or even worse, China. Now, that's an extreme version. But when I was in China, nobody was in the bus lane. Nobody was, uh, uh, you know, uh, abusing any of the road rules because there are cameras li literally everywhere. But there's some really odd ones as well. Like, for example, in Australia, one of the big problems at the moment is because it's a warmer climate, a lot of the AI photos, the photos that have been taken, are showing women's underwear because they're wearing skirts and the, 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 the seatbelt, uh, the, the way it sits on, on women's skirts, it, it, it's a bit of a privacy mess. Um, so there are a lot of objections. Because you're getting inside the car with these yeah. cameras. Now, now, you're not seeing the face, but you're matching it up to license place and those images are being stored. So, I mean, there are considerable um, fears about this. And then there's always the problem of feature creep. So if you uh, install a load more cameras on roads, then someone somewhere will say, well, look, we should be using this for something else because there's a need in the community to do so. I mean, in Limerick, they ran into quite a lot of uh, trouble recently uh, with the Data Protection Commissioner for overuse of CCTV TV cameras and just installing too many of them. OK, it's interesting as well that you say that, that maybe it will or you believe it, do, it will require legislation and um, to deal with those privacy matters, that it's not something because I know it's for consideration or it's being considered by the Gardaí, but it's not as simple as saying, yeah, we love that new technology. Let's put up a few cameras here. No, I mean, the, the specific offences, I mean, they're governed quite specifically by specific road traffic acts. I mean, you, you might argue that there are greater <coughs> concerns down the road coming with potentially with facial recognition technology, which is also being discussed, for example, on guard of body cams, and there might be European issues uh, involved there as well. Yeah, interesting on this one, and that Adrian uh, mentioned that facial recognition technology, because that's something that there's been criticism of, that, you know, there's talk about that being added to body cam, existing bo or body cam legislation that's going through, and that's such a technology, which does, some would say had, there, there are data concerns around it and it hasn't worked very well elsewhere in terms of profiling uh, criticism as well, that that could just be, you know, shoved through with other legislation and that something like this could happen without, you know, due diligence being given to, you know, the potential outcomes, the consequences of such technology. What do you make of it all? I, I don't think something like this certainly could be shoved 
through and I think it's uh, good to get clarification that this is just something that the Gardaí are examining at the moment. Uh, what we know is there is definitely an issue with mobile phone usage. Um, I think we're all aware of it. We all probably notice it from, from time to time. Um, and those type of uh, offences are certainly happening and are going undetected and are probably causing issues. Um, but it's all about balance. Um, and as Adrian has described the technology, um, I certainly would have my own personal concerns, at least with the idea of high-powered cameras uh, and the level of detail that they'll be able to pick up. Fair enough, they can pick up if you're not wearing a seatbelt or not wearing a mobile phone, but how far is your privacy uh, invaded? Can it tell what brand of coffee you're drinking or if you're... You know, not to well, make light of it. Those have to be the least of your worries. Exactly. Um, if you're it, mashing along to Bohemian Rhapsody, I mean, there's yeah. so, for some people, your inside of your car is on a, a serious is a note, though. Um, this idea of this sort of mass surveillance or increasing surveillance—that the more this new technology comes in, the more that it will be attractive for, say, the Gardaí to use it in, you know, fighting crime, catching speeders, catching people not wearing seatbelts. Um, is it is it a concern that Sinn Fein shares or? You know, in this in this balance between privacy and road safety, road mm. safety wins out. Well, I think road safety is important, absolutely, but so is privacy. So, I mean, you do have to find that you do have to find that balance. So, I mean, how do you find it? What, what okay, would so you think the, of the this? The debate uh, in relation to the use the, the use of body cameras uh, came from uh, members of Angarda Shia Khan themselves, who you know, and we've all seen it at protests. People march up to in front of the Gardaí and somebody has a mobile phone. They're pointing it directly into the face of the member of Angarda Shia Khan. They're using it in an intimidatory way, and there is a very one-sided recording that exists of any incident. So in order to protect the public and the Gardaí, I do think we need, uh, they, they need the body cameras. Oh, I, I think, think that's important. I think that the, and there seems but, to be cross oh no, there is, there's the, consensus the on that. cameras. It's the other aspect that's of what it. I'm, I'm, I'm just getting to that. It's the facial aspects. recognition where, I mean, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties have expressed uh, concerns in relation to that and in relation to the potential for racial profiling. So I think there's, we won't be the first, uh, the, the first country to, the first state to adopt this. So I think there is potential there to look at where there have been mistakes made and where there have been issues in other places and to learn from them. But I do have a concern in relation to racial profiling. I also would have a concern in relation to saying that loads of these cameras are going to be put up, that's fine. They're going to help with uh, detecting road, uh, road traffic offences. That's also very important and very welcome. But what else are they going to do? So mm. we need to know the full range of what they're capable of, how it can be limited if it does need to be limited <clears throat> and how it can be used to actually and effectively fight crime. So we need to hear from the Gardaí. We also need to hear from the, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties and other groups like that so that we can get it right. And I think most of all, we need to learn from what's happening in other places where they have this technology and they have used it already. I think that's important. No need for us to be reinventing any wheels. If they've made mistakes Adrian, elsewhere, we don't need to replicate. Adrian, you saying this is being trialled and piloted elsewhere. Mm. Has um, any country taken it up? Is it, you know... Uh, permanently and decided to, to, to use it permanently. Like no. you mentioned China there now, they yeah. would have... Is that what we're talking about in terms of well, the, the use <clears throat> of such technology? Is it China that uses it? Yeah, those it? are the countries... China is the one that I know best in terms of having rolled out this type of technology very, very completely. Now, they take it to absolute... Uh, extremes. If you go through an airport, sometimes a machine will recognise you um, according to your passport, photo, they've social credit scores, things like that as well. I think um, one of the, the negative pieces of feedback about the deployment and potential for this technology, and, and just will take facial recognition as well, 
it tends to build up more completely in more disadvantaged communities. So what happens is, is that more of these cameras are deployed on roads or in neighborhoods that are disadvantaged. Facial recognition technology is deployed more. And before you know it, what you have is very, very detailed profiles of people in an entire neighborhood in one neighborhood and not really in another, in a better one. So we really have to watch it there when it comes to civil liberties, I think. Okay, and see where uh, that goes. Only under consideration uh, right now, but we'll see where that goes from there. And we'll leave it there. Lots more after this break. We'll tell you where Ireland stands in Europe when it comes to the price of electricity. Do stay with us. Welcome back. The worst kept secret in Washington is now official. Joe Biden is running for re-election in 2024. He announced his campaign with an online video earlier. This is not a time to be complacent. That's why I'm running for re-election. There he is. Let's go live to Washington now and speak to correspondent Nick Harper. Nick Harper, hardly a surprise here, as we're saying. But what can we take from the, the, the launch of that video, the style of it, and, and what are you sort of saying to voters? Yeah, the style of that video, a three-minute video, Claire, it's very fast, it's very energetic, really trying to show the vitality of a man who is 80 years old. And that's the big problem that his team have, really trying to present him as someone who is energetic, able to get out there and engage with voters. And that's why we see all of that in the video. He also talks about fighting for democracy and for personal freedoms. In many ways, this whole video is not so much about his accomplishments of the last two and a half years. It's more what he'll be fighting against, what he thinks the Republican Party, his rival, stands for. And he talks about the idea of democracy being under threat, the country as a whole being under threat. We see shots of pro-abortion activists, uh, LGBTQ communities, uh, all the type of things that the president says that he's standing up for and will continue to fight for if he gets a second term as president. We also got response, didn't we, from Donald Trump, another man of, of a certain vintage. It's not like, um, you know, there aren't other older people running for uh, the office another time. What did he have to say about it? Yeah, he wasn't very impressed, Claire, as you would imagine. He said that uh, Joe Biden is the single worst president in American history. Republicans as a whole said that uh, Biden is out of touch. They also put out an attack video saying that he would be the weakest president in US history if he were to be re-elected. Remember, if he gets elected, he would finish his second term at the age of 86. Incredibly old, a few years older than Donald Trump, but not much of a difference between the two of them. I think the problem for the Democrat Party, though, is that they don't really have a heavyweight hitter who can replace Joe Biden on the ticket. No one else coming up through the ranks who is that material that they need to potentially be a president. And the problem is that the approval rating for Joe Biden also reflects that. It has dipped recently, also uh, almost to record lows for the president. The vast majority of Democrat voters in the last 48 hours in the polls all saying they do not think that he should run for a second term. But here we are, he's made it official and he is running. Okay, Nick Harper joining us from Washington tonight. Thank you uh, for that. Now, here's a statistic that you won't like to hear. The price of electricity in Ireland is the highest in Europe or among the highest. That's according to new research. It's almost double the European average according to those statistics commissioned by um, Austrian and Hungarian 
energy regulators with Christopher O'Sullivan and Louise O'Reilly are still here with me. I'm also joined by Derek Hasty of Bonkers.ie and Warren Lynch, Senior Research Officer at the ESRI. You're both very welcome along uh, to the programme tonight. Dara, uh, break down those numbers that we saw today published um, in, in the Irish Independent about the unit price for electricity. Um, it's eye-watering. And I said, you know, people might, this might come as a surprise. It probably won't come as a, as a surprise no. to many people who are getting bills through uh, the door. Yeah, anyone who's opened up an electricity bill over the past few months or even a gas bill as well won't be surprised. It's a really, really high number, but this isn't surprising. Eurostat releases these figures every six months also. And when Eurostat releases the figures, uh, it always shows that we're around the second or the third most expensive in all of Europe for electricity. Um, it's 50 cents at the moment per kilowatt hour on average that's up from around maybe 20 cents to 22 cents in Ireland back in 2020 so it's a big turnaround but it compares to an average of around 28 cents in Europe so it means it's over 70% above what it is in Europe so that's a big amount and um, what that means for the average bill the average households that would be paying maybe a close to eight, nine hundred euro extra a year. It's not an insignificant amount of money. And of course, there's lots of countries um, not that dissimilar to Ireland, included in those figures. For example, Norway, and mind you, they have a lot more renewables that we do. They have a price of 14 cents to 15 cents. So that 50 cent figure is really, really high. And it's a, it's a big outlier. Yeah, incredibly high. And when these discussions are had, I suppose, especially now with politicians, um, on, on the panel with us, they will say, you know, it's not just us, it's being experienced right across Europe, it's the war, it's all sorts of things. But our base price appears to be more, certainly much higher than other, you know, before any of these other factors come into play. We've very high for our unit price. So what, why are we top of the pile? Why do we pay so much more than our European neighbours? So I would say there are um, things that we know and things that we don't know. Um, we're still trying to get to the bottom of this to some extent. There's new research that needs to be done, but there are lots of factors that could be playing in here. Now, some of them are things we can't do anything about. So we can't do anything about the fact that we're an island. We can't do anything about the fact that we only have two interconnectors to Great Britain. We're getting another one to France, but still has to be built. We also can't really do anything about the fact that our population is so dispersed. So that means that it just costs more on average to get electricity to every single home and business around the country. We don't have as many densely populated cities. We don't have as, mu as much apartment blocks and that kind of thing that are cheaper to service. And then there, there are other things we probably could do something about in the longer term. So That's the, fact, the question. What's yeah. within our control? So we're still very reliant on gas generation. So we're reliant on fossil fuels in general for electricity. Some of that is not our fault in that we've tapped all of our hydro resources. We don't have the kind of resources they have in places like Switzerland, for example. But within those fossil fuels, we're very reliant on gas. We don't have any nuclear. We don't have much coal. Nuclear is a low carbon source, but um, coal is a very high carbon source. And then on top of that, our renewable electricity seems to be coming in more expensive than other countries. So the subsidies that we pay for renewable electricity are quite high, considering how windy we are. Some of that, and we've got some preliminary results to suggest that if you have long delays in the planning system, that all puts upward pressure on prices. So in order to get a renewable energy project online, for example, let's say you wanted to build a wind turbine, mm. first you have to get planning permission. I have yet to speak to a wind developer that got planning permission within the 18 weeks as targeted by onboard Panola. Then once you've got planning permission, you have to get a grid connection. Then once you've got your grid connection, you have to go and apply for a subsidy. And these things all stack up so it 
it can take years to get these things online. If we could shorten that time frame, that would have a material impact on our bills, according to research we've okay. done. Um, Christopher, to ask you about this, is the government keen on investigating just why we are paying so much more than everyone else? I think uh, Mirren outlined it uh, pretty well there, but I, I, something I think we should certainly consider in order to tackle all of the issues that, that Mirren has outlined is uh, a specific Ministry for Energy, something to focus on, uh, roll is out. Is that of, not, who's doing that? Eamon Ryan? No, it's, at, at the moment there's quite a broad uh, department there. It includes communications, it includes uh, transport, it includes climate action. Well, he's too much on his place it's, there, it's, do you it's think, a, it's, it's a huge uh, task and it's a huge ask. And I think with the cost of energy, with the need and the urgency to move towards clean renewable energy and get away from that gas and fossil fuels that we're dependent on, we need to expedite the rollout of renewable energy. Marin is right. You're saying we need we need a new minister for energy that the existing minister for energy can't do this job on investigating why we are paying so much more for electricity. Than I'm not questioning else. the job that the existing uh, minister is doing. No, but you believe I'm it needs to be a because, because of portfolio. the task, because of the task at hand, because of the cost of energy, because of the cost of electricity to businesses and to households, you know, we should have a windfall tax in place already. The windfall tax hesitation is, is due to come to the doll at this session, which would, we would stand together Let's in, take in the Let's take that for example. And I know that that, that won't, you know, that, that's another matter. It'll the help. windfall tax It'll decision help. was only made because Europe as a bloc were making that decision. So we got on board with that. But we're lagging behind yeah, other European countries. Have Europe made that decision back in October. Uh, and actually, if, if, if the legislation was put in place in around November, December, we would actually stand to get a far greater windfall because the prices were much bigger then. We need to expedite these type of decisions and measures. And by the way, I also think that sure, the, pri the private... You're, you're a TD. I'm, I'm, I'm allowed to have a, 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 okay. a, a, a cast a critical enough. eye on things, but things need to happen faster, okay. absolutely. Also, I think the private market uh, have, have a... a a role to play. ESB, for example, they had profits in 2022 of 847 million. The government will obviously get a dividend of that, but I do think ESB and Electric Ireland have a, a far too big a share, I would say, All right. in the electricity supply market. I think there needs to be more competition. That could bring down prices as okay. well. Okay, that's interesting to hear that um, for someone within a coalition party. Louise, I take it you'd agree with everything Christopher had to say. Would you agree with having a um, standalone portfolio um, minister for energy to really look at why we are paying so much, um, so much more for our electricity than everyone else. I think it was it was interesting to to hear Christopher say that you know he doesn't think the the, the way that his government is structured that he supports is is structured no, in the right way. I didn't say that. I think there's a but case for I an energy finish? minister. No, I um, didn't. And I think that well, and which minister would you get rid of them? Because I mean, there's only okay, 15. Let's not get on to no, the politics. No, but I mean, it's, 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 it's a political question. It is a political question. Let's just focus in on that. So the, uh, the 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 government representative thinks we need more competition. In actual fact, you know, once the the market deregulated, that the prices started to go up. So I'm not certain that more competition is necessarily the answer. But what I do know is we do need to bring the cost for consumers down. So we saw Electric Ireland passed on 15% savings to businesses. I mean, the question has to be asked if that can be done. Done. And if uh, wholesale electricity prices, and they are, are at 50% of what they were this time last year, well, then we need to ask, why is that not being passed on? But we also need to know, why has there been so much foot dragging in relation to the windfall taxes? I raised this, um, I think Pierce Doherty raised it as well, probably, I think it's almost a year ago now, and the government just delayed and yeah. delayed and okay. delayed. They don't live in the real world, they don't know what people Dara, are suffering. Dara, um, just on this passing down discounts or passing mm -hmm. down reduced prices to um, electricity um, to, to, to customers, why isn't that happening uh, quicker enough? What's, 
Well, but a lot of it is stalling all of that. Hedging, and also there are inefficiencies in the markets because the cost of generating electricity in Ireland seems to be way above what it is in other countries. So even today, and I know a lot of people think lots of suppliers are making super normal profits. Not all of them are in Ireland, at least. But the cost of energy, um, of electricity at the moment for the first three months of the year was 155 megawatts. That's still 300% what it was in 2020. So there's actually nothing to pass on at the moment. Now, I don't know why, I don't know why, the electricity costs so much to generate, but at the moment it doesn't seem to be anything to pass on because it's still at absolutely astronomical levels in Ireland, but seems to have eased back in other countries. The other issue quickly is just around hedging. Companies, they buy their, you know, their energy at different stages throughout the year. Some companies would have bought electricity last year when it was at a much, much higher price. So that kind of has to wash through the system. But I'm hopeful that we might see some price decreases, probably quite small, but we might see some in the second half of this year. All right. Um, unfortunately, we have to leave that there for now. Uh, my thanks to our panel tonight, to everyone who has joined us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok, tonight, the MTV. But from all the late team here, good night. You take care. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.